Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is the Nerd at Book Club. It's just like a normal book club, except sometimes the author stops by. This month's selection is Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's by Anne Helen Peterson, and it's an expansion of an article that she wrote for BuzzFeed a couple of years ago that went super viral. The book and the article are both examinations of the numerous forces that have led people to just be completely exhausted. And, you know, just to name a few, we've got student loans or the recession or the prevalence of smartphones, maybe the cost of healthcare. There's like literally a million other things, let alone the pandemic. So, of course, there is lots to discuss. And welcome to Nerdette. It is my pleasure to be here. Um, so before we get any farther, I think we need to do some definitions of terms. Let's start with millennial. How are you defining that? So I define it as like 1980, born in 1980 to 1995, technically. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. I think you can be a millennial in your heart. Uh, <laughs> if the experience <laughs> of being a millennial is uh, defined by precariousness, mm. there are people who are technically millennials who maybe do not have the same uh, you know, they do not resonate with that feeling of like, yeah. everything is hard and I'm overwhelmed all the time. Um, okay, so what about burnout? How are you describing that one? The best way to think of burnout, at least in the way that I'm describing it, is mm-hmm. that feeling of you are running this race that feels like it's lasted forever. You're so tired. You feel like you're going to drop out. You hit the wall, but then you scale the wall and you just keep going for like... Ooh a race that is the rest of your life. (laughs) Well, and I do want to be really clear here too, that I mean, much of the article and a lot of the book, though, you do get a lot of other viewpoints in the book, of course, as well. Mm -hmm. It it is from your own point of view, largely too, right? And your experience as like a middle-class white cis lady. So I think that my original essay was really like rooted in that. Like it was a personal essay that was trying Mm -hmm. to make some connections generationally. Mm -hmm. And then my goal with the book was to try to both go expand it horizontally. So having so many more perspectives, talking to so many more people, and then Mm -hmm. also expand it, I guess, vertically, for lack of a better term, in terms of really looking at the historical causes of how we got to this point and spending time thinking through like what was going on with boomers while they were raising us Mm -hmm. um, and, and grappling with that as well. Yeah, because I think it's it's just important, especially early on in an interview like this, to be like for a lot of people, especially who are not white people or who are not middle class, burnout is not at all a new development. Yes, absolutely. And I think that. You know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, the wariness of like, oh, because white middle class people are experiencing it, suddenly it's important, right? Now it's a thing to talk about. Right. And I think what what happened as well is that because it expanded into the white middle class experience, that tipped the experience over into like a majority. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so it felt like something that most people were experiencing. And I think, to be clear, that it should have been something that we were incredibly attentive to before it was a majority experience, right? Like if some people were experiencing it, that sucks. And we should, we are only as healthy as our least healthy person. We are only as yeah. non-burnt out as our most burnt out person. Yeah. So I'm curious why you decided to frame this as a millennial issue as opposed to just like, wow, this is a really weird time for all kinds of people in America. You know, like it almost seems like you could call burnout a societal problem as opposed to a generational one. Oh, it's totally a societal problem. But I think that a lot of the symptoms have manifested more acutely in millennials. And that has to do just with our generational timing. So Mm -hmm. Because of the time when we entered into the workforce, either graduating from high school or graduating from college, it was right into the the Great Recession or into the aftermath of the Great Recession. And so that has had incredible effects on every component of our economic standing, just how long it took to to reach some sort of economic stability, if it was ever achieved, and also the kind of jobs that a lot of us were able to find. You know, one of the, the most significant Stats about the jobs that were added to the economy after the Great Recession is that the majority of them were contingent or temp or, you know, unstable in some way. Right. So yeah. people might have found jobs, but they did not have the sort of stability that would you know, make you feel stable. And I think there also was an, an incredible psychological scarring that happened as a result of entering into the job market at that point, I think people really internalize the idea that it's okay to work for less. It is okay and normal to work in incredibly unstable conditions. Uh, you know, we just accustomed ourselves, acclimatized ourselves to that precarious workplace. And, you know, I use the word scarring purposefully because it is a word that economists use to talk about people's attitudes towards the economy, their spending habits, their their ideas about the future. And I think that most millennials I know, when, when the pandemic hit and the concurrent economic recession, they were like, oh, of course, right? Of course, as soon as I found a modicum of stability, this would happen. Sure. Well, and I think the other thing to point out that speaks to your book largely is the idea, you know, a lot of people did move back home then after school because it was their best option in terms of actually being able to figure out how to, you know, how to work with their temp jobs or whatever. And then there became this thing about how like, oh, yeah, all the millennials are just like moving back home because they can't handle it. Where, you know, like the, the reality around that was way different than what a lot of people were sort of like mocking millennials for. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, if you graduate from college and you have student debt that's going to, you're going to have to start making payments on soon and you can't find a job, what are you going to do, right? Like, what are your other options? And some people didn't even have that option, right? I know. I was going to say, like, hopefully you like your parents and that's a place where you actually can be. Or that your parents' home wasn't foreclosed upon, right? sure. You know, like, that's – there were some people who could deal – like, could handle graduating and and not having a place to go – I mean, there's just so many different ways that this affected millennials. And the fact that it was framed as millennials being somehow lazy is insult to injury, right? Yeah, for sure. 
So I mentioned your BuzzFeed article. I remember exactly where I was when I read it for the first time. It hit me super hard. And it was actually right around the first that when I like signed up for a therapist for the first time in my life, uh, which was for a number of reasons, but I'm sure burnt out burnout was playing into that. Um, and I remember like the first meeting I had with my therapist, I mentioned your article and she was like, you know, I haven't read it yet, but everyone who's come in this week has mentioned this, to me. <laughs> which I just thought was like, holy shit, this is so real. But one thing you talk about in the article that that I connected with, especially strongly at the time, and that I think a lot that I imagine might resonate with a lot of people is the idea of task fatigue, mm-hmm. which like, you know, I mean, I consider myself to be like a pretty type A, f- highly functioning human. But especially at the time, that was when. Like I, you know, I had not scheduled an annual medical exam for two years straight. And it was like this awkward thing where like I canceled once and I was like, oh, they're probably really annoyed with me. Totally. I'm just not going to deal with it. And, and then I felt weird that I hadn't done it, but I still didn't feel like it just, it was like the perfect stupid shame spiral. Yep. Um, can you give a little more framework around the idea of task fatigue for people? Yeah, I mean, my dorky name for it is errand paralysis. Uh, (laughs) And that was actually what I thought was going on when I was first burned, like when I was burnt out. I was like, I'm not burned out. I just can't do my errands. And so I tried to figure that out, right? Like I was just researching, okay, what's going on here? It's like, oh, you're burnt out. But I think that, you know, I like the example that you used because it's a kind of a perfect storm of like what's difficult in that you know, you had a provider, but a lot of people do not have providers. Right. Totally. Right? And it was like not even a medical thing I like absolutely needed to do. Nope. It was just the thing I knew I should do. Yeah. So there are two things going on. One is that there are oftentimes uh, constrictions put in place that make it really difficult to even like start to find something like, of you know, like when I first moved to Missoula, I was like, how do I find it? My dad's a doctor. Like, my dad is a family physician. I know how to do these things. Like, I, I'm not scared of doctors, but I was like, who, who do I choose? I don't, I don't have any idea. And, like, now nurse practitioners are all over the place, uh, you know, in place of, mm-hmm. of doctors. And I was like, is that okay? What do I do with this? It was just so stressful. And it shouldn't have been. Right. Like, it's so difficult to even make an account to then figure out if this provider is in network. They are all organized in a way that makes it so that you don't do it, which is weird, right? Because, you know, insurance would actually be, you know, better if we had ease of care and then had less long-term problems, chronic problems that cost more money in the long run. Uh, And then the other thing I think is that oftentimes, and I certainly felt this, errands there is this a millennial mindset for a lot of people that anything that takes away from work is cancelable and far less important, right? So it gets deprioritized on that list again and again and again because it's time that you could be working. In just a minute, I'm going to talk with Anne about how we can solve this problem. Is it personal? Is it societal? Can we even solve it at all? Is this where I just laugh manically for a while? Sure. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. 
Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Uh, the other day I've been like thinking about buying a new bed frame. I feel like it's time. <laughs> and I got like an Instagram ad for one the other day and I was looking at it and it was one of those bed frames that like, you know, you can like tilt it upwards, you know, if you want to sit up in your bed. Yeah. And the description of it was like, increase the productivity of your bedroom. And I was just like, <laughs> oh God, it's everywhere. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a bed for people in like nursing homes, right? Right, and I right. Think, <laughs> I think the fact that we're trying to like, actually, this is a great connection. So I was just reading <laughs> about how the, you know, the Aeron chair that's like very expensive, The right? Herman Miller, totally. NPR underwriter. The tall yep. backed office chair that swivels around and then has like kind of the, the mesh netting. <laughs> so, so that chair was developed in the early 1990s for nursing Ooh. homes. So that people could sit oh, in Lord. chairs for a very long time without developing bed sores. And and then the, it wasn't selling very well. So they stripped off some of the additional padding on it. Oh. And then they're like, oh, you know who we should sell this to? People working in tech Great. who work all the time. <laughs> so it's a really good connection, I think, that like, you know, we are trying to optimize our lives in order... <laughs> In ways that like make us as sedentary as people who are nursing in nursing homes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I just immediately thought of you. It was like, great. Can't wait to mention this one. So you talk about a number of, of economic factors um, that you say in the book are leading to burnout among millennials. Um, one of them is kind of perfectly encapsulated in this meme that's been going around. <laughs> Have you seen this where it's like, there are these two like circles and they're super in love, but they're being ripped apart. And then you don't really get it until like the punchline at the end is that actually the circles are points on a chart that shows productivity and wages and how like <laughs> they were increasing together until 1980. And then all of a sudden they're split up and it's just like, you know, these two points are devastated that they're not next to each other. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, that's great though. Oh my gosh. But I described it adequately enough that you yeah. get what it's getting at. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the startling thing too is that, economists really thought that as productivity went up, then maybe we could just work less, right? Right. Wouldn't that be nice? Like, what is it? Like the 16-hour work week or something? Not even, you know, yeah. Like the <laughs> the the yeah, 16, 20 hours, like there, there was great. a hypothesis like in the beginning half of the 20th century that, oh, so if we could do the same work as we did now, right, that would create the same amount of profits. So people could just work less and be happier, better citizens, more involved with their communities, like all of these pretty utopian sounding things that shouldn't sound utopian. Mm -hmm. But instead, because capitalism is capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, we embrace the idea that like, oh, you can be more productive, you need to make more things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Of course, of course. And, and then the fact that starting in 1980, like instead of just getting paid more to be more productive, you just were more productive and actually were paid less. So it is just like, it's just a screwed up 
situation on every level. And I think we've become, it's become so normalized that Mm -hmm. one of the hopes of my book is just to point out, like, it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. So the other thing I found myself thinking about a lot personally was, so in the book, you illustrate the number of forces that have contributed, especially to white middle class burnout. I think you talk about, you know, how when a lot of us were kids, there was this idea of like concerted cultivation, Mm -hmm. which is the keeping up with the Joneses stuff. It's like kids have to do violin and soccer and chess club and, you know, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you also talk about how in the now times, there's kind of a similar thing happening with Instagram and with like, you know, having this like beautifully cultivated life and, and even just how our phones in general are contributing to burnout. The thing that I kept thinking about in both of those instances is that like, when I was sick of Girl Scouts, I stopped doing Girl Scouts, Mm -hmm. you know, and like, if I feel like I've looked at my phone too much, I read a book. And I, I just wonder, like, I totally get the external forces stuff, but I just wonder how much you think some of the issues you're pointing out that are leading up to burnout are because the outside pressure on us is too intense versus that, like, we just need to learn how to practice adequate boundaries. <sighs> yeah, I, I absolutely think so. And I think a lot of the difficulties with boundaries are due to exhaustion, right? That's a good point. Like, I think most of us totally understand that when I'm sick of looking at my phone and I hate that I'm looking at my phone, what I really need to do is just turn off my phone. It's like, put your fucking phone down. (laughs) Right. Um, And, but oftentimes you don't have the wherewithal to do it. And, And again, this isn't necessarily new. Like there are. I think a lot about how like scrolling Instagram is just the new version of um, like the exhausted worker coming home and scrolling through the channels on TV, right? Mm-hmm. Like flipping the channels, which mm-hmm. is such like a weird uh, thing for most younger people to even remember is that that experience That's of true. like that was the thing flipping the channel. Yeah, just like despondently. Scro- yeah. <laughs> and, you know, at, my my training is as a media historian. And so like mm-hmm. there is really great work on how there was something called flow that would keep people watching, you know, catch them while they were flipping the channels, but then keep them watching through the commercials and into the next television show. You know, the the most sophisticated version now is like the Netflix uh, flow in which like the new episode starts before the other one has even stopped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh those things are designed to keep you doing the thing that you're doing, right? Like they want to keep you hooked in and Instagram and our social media things, they like they are designed to fight our best impulses. Yeah. And so I think whether you have the the wherewithal to like site, set one of those timers that like kicks you off of your social media or you can wrest yourself from it through sheer force of will, the thing about will is it erodes with fatigue. You know, there are great studies that show that when you are in precarious positions, like they, they look specifically at people who are experiencing poverty or, or homelessness, it just erodes your ability to make good decisions. doesn't mean that you're stupider. It just means that like your capacity to think clearly and choose the choice that is clearly better for you, it gets a whole lot more difficult. Um, and you know, people, <laughs> burnt out middle class people are not the same as people experiencing homelessness, but that same idea that fatigue and exhaustion and 
lack of stability would make it difficult to choose the choice that's actually healthy for you. That makes total sense to me. So what do we do about it? Like, is it about mitigation? Is there a cure? Do we just burn it all down? (laughs) Um, Well, I think that the, the easiest way to get people to start being able to, you know, be stubborn about things and to choose things that actually nourish them or like, you know, become whole people again is to take away some of that precarity from their everyday lives. And there are so many straightforward things that could do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, That again, sound utopian, but shouldn't be. And that's things like universal healthcare, uh, universal childcare so that people aren't constantly worrying about finding safe, affordable childcare. Uh, enforced maternity and paternity leave because paternity leave is one of the only ways that has shown to actually uh, distribute labor in the home more equally. And then like simple things like, this is actually not a simple thing, but trying to figure out how to regulate so-called independent contractors for places like uber right in a way that actually makes it so that they have to be treated like employees and you know there have been attempts at that in the state of california and it was bad legislation it wasn't grappling with the realities like Mm -hmm. you need to talk to uber drivers about how you could actually change this and other people who are independent contractors but that's a huge thing and then you know and on a more straightforward level in some states and cities have tried to grapple with this something that creates a tremendous amount of burnout in retail workers is scheduling that comes out the week of, right? It's algorithmic scheduling that is released every week. And that makes it impossible to schedule your life in any capacity, schedule childcare, Mm -hmm. schedule your second job, schedule Mm -hmm. school. And I think that that's one of many straightforward things that could be regulated for people who are working retail and hourly jobs. So your book sets up the problem of burnout really well. You very intentionally do not offer like a list of things people can do to help themselves. Um, I wonder, do you know of a book that does kind of like set up the antidote that people who are like, okay, I get it. What next? (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? Is I don't, the the problems have to be societal. Like I think obviously going to therapy is a great way to grapple with some of these internalized problems because I do think a lot of millennials have a psychological obstacle that we need to unpack. We need to see it clearly and unpack and try to work with it all the time. But again, you know, therapy is something that is inaccessible to millions of people who don't have health insurance that covers it, who live in cities where it is incredibly unaffordable or who live in rural places where it is incredibly difficult to find a therapist. So I don't think that that can be an across the board suggestion. And I'm very reticent to recommend it as something that will be available to everyone. But we have to advocate for things that will re-knit the safety net for everyone. Because I think that things that address this on the the personal level, that's fine. That's a good Band-Aid. But you're still bleeding, right? Like it's not going to... It's not going to fix it. So we have to think about things that aren't just for ourselves, aren't just for people who look like us, who work in places like us, but for everyone. So maybe the homework in terms of the personal level stuff should just be like to practice your no muscle and just like saying no more. Because I do feel like that's a pretty good one 
when it comes to like, you know, just like a lot of people are really uncomfortable saying like, you know what? I can't do that. Yep. But, but like you totally can. And it's really, really important. Yeah. You know, uh, fellow public radio personality, Linda Holmes, the other day tweeted that every person should have a no person in their life. And And that means that it should be someone who, when you run a scenario past them, that they yeah. immediately say, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Totally. My mom actually is really good at being both the enabler and the no person. <laughs> and so I'll tell her ahead of time. I'll be like, listen, I'm going to set this up. I want you to tell me no at the end. Okay. Or I want you to say this is a good idea. And then we go through it. It's great. It works every time. <laughs> you know, the other day I was asked to be part of this panel that was operating out of the UK and they were going mm-hmm. to pay me $500 and you know, I still have a real freelancers and, and contingent faculty mindset at heart where yeah, I'm like, $500, $500, like, yeah, man. doesn't matter if freelance taxes are going to take half of that. It's still $250, um, <laughs> but it would have required me to be ready and on the panel at 4 a.m. my time. And, and I was telling my partner about it. He's like, what's wrong with you? Of course, you're not going to do that. He's like, <laughs> he's like, you know what? You that will ruin you for the rest of the day. And I was like, yeah, that's two days, $500. And he's like, no, it's not worth $500. If you aren't able to do your work the rest of the day. And I was like, ah, right. Um, but you need someone who can see clearly because I think a lot of times we cannot see ourselves and our own habits clearly. Yeah. I love that. That's even better homework. Actually. It's like, find yourself a cheerleader, find yourself a no person. Yeah. Helen Peterson, thank you so much. And thanks for, for writing this book and just getting people talking about it. Of course. It's, it's obviously long overdue. So I'm glad we're doing it. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. And Helen Peterson, her book is called Can't Even, and we want to hear from you about this subject. Even if you haven't read the book, Even if you are not a millennial, tell us all of your feelings about burnout. What is wearing you down? What have you found that helps? Let us know. Just record yourself on your phone and email the audio to us. We are nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're like, oh, I'm way too burnt out to record my own voice. I can't handle it. But you're up for an email. Just do that. Again, the address is nerdatpodcast at gmail. We would love to hear from you. And then be sure to come back for the book club discussion that is happening the last Friday of this month. Next week, we are trying that cool thing again where we skip the Tuesday episode and put a bunch of good stuff in the Friday episode. So be sure to tune in for that. The show is produced by me with help from Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Do your homework. Do it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.